The crowd on the shore at Hastings, England, emitted a roar of excitement as the contestants emerged. Having split the best-of-three contest one-and-one so far, this final race was the deciding factor. The victor took the spoils. The contestants shed their outer coats and, one tall and wearing blue, the other shorter and dressed in pink, the athletes took their marks to begin the contest. Over 1,200 people gathered on September 22, 1879, to witness a competition of physical prowess between Agnes Beckwith and Laura Sagerman, the third in their series of swimming races. That's right, a swimming race between women who were wearing swimming costumes in Victorian England. Looming large amongst the crowd were Agnes's father, the promoter of the race, and swimming instructor Frederick Edwin Beckwith, and Laura's brothers, Charlie and Ben, who were also swimming professionals. But the lady swimmers were the draw of the day. I'm Barbara North, and I am here to tell you how this race and these racers were all part of a growing movement of professional and amateur swimmers, including women swimmers, competing and performing in the same skills and spaces as men. The 1870s in England were a time of growing fascination with swimming, both as a sport and as an exhibition performance. In our current era of swim teams, high dives, and polar bear plunges, exhibition swimming might seem like a fun thing to watch when the Olympics roll around, but not as much fun as participation swimming. In the 1800s, however, swimming was not a common skill in many communities, and the ability to hold one's breath underwater for any length of time was quite impressive and something of a spectacle in and of itself. Swimming performers would do tricks like reading the newspaper, or drinking a glass of milk, all while holding their breath underwater. While bathing or floating around in water had long been seen as a restorative and healthy part of cleanliness culture, swimming as a sport activity required different skills and was an opportunity to demonstrate physical prowess. This was in an era of spectacle and sport. Throughout the course of the 1800s, amateur and professional sports were rapidly growing as pastimes for the expanding middle class. Bicycling, skiing, swimming, baseball, soccer, and more all became part of popular culture. International sports competitions began to grow. At the same time, performers like P.T. Barnum were growing their spectacles as another way to capture the time, attention, and money of the general public. While the idea that Victorian England was remarkably prudish has been widely debunked, cultural expectations around class and gender norms were commonly held, And, especially for middle-class women, the idea of women's family lives was treated as a very sentimentalized role. There were a number of expectations about how women should behave within society, within a marriage, and within a family. And for the most part, these did not involve participating in sports. Though many women were able to engage in activities involved limited perception of physical activity— Both bathing and swimming not only met this criteria, they found a way to become part of the expectation of women and motherhood. For women, especially middle-class women, swimming was often framed as part of their ability to care for children. A woman who was trained in swimming could save any child at risk of drowning. Swimming was also presumed to help build strong bodies for childbearing and was seen as a wonderfully hygienic and low-impact activity for women to use to build strength and muscles they didn't commonly use in their other womenly activities. For most middle-class women, personal health, skill, satisfaction, or their own safety was not the priority in their swimming abilities. 
But the lack of prioritization of their own desires or self-realization did not, in this case, exclude them from participation in the sport. And everyone who could afford the price of a ticket could equally enjoy the naiads and other swimming entertainers who were performing in theaters and other venues. Additionally, as women students queued up to learn to swim, many of them and their families preferred that they be taught in women-only environments, meaning that increased interest in women learning to swim led to increased opportunity for women to be employed as swimming instructors in addition to their employment options as swimming performers. Swimming as an employment option most directly impacted the lives of working-class women. Suddenly, instead of 12 hours a day on their feet on the hot shop floor, women had the opportunity to learn a performance skill that would earn them up to two pounds a week, which is the equivalent of over 256 pounds or $320 a week in 2022, for a few minutes of work per night, making performing as a naiad lucrative work if you could keep employment in that field. General swimming instruction may have been a bit less lucrative, but was significantly more respectable and often still a good income business. Laura Sagerman, who is often promoted as the best lady swimming instructor in England, once boasted of having led over 50 individual swimming lessons in one morning. Colorful poster after poster that has been preserved from the time show performance swimmers pulling off elaborate tricks. Detailed illustrations of swimming strokes, fanciful costumes covered in ribbons, and half-mer people decorate the posters. Agnes's father, Fred Beckwith, claimed to have invented the idea of the traveling aquarium, an easy-to-move performance tank for touring swimming activity that appears to be a large box full of water with a glass wall. Swimming performers did have more permanent residencies in addition to their travel shows, such as in the Cremorne Gardens, which was a pleasure garden near the River Thames in London. Swimmers were regularly described as magical, wondrous, and glamorous, and compared to frogs, seals, merpeople, and more. The lady swimmers carried extra glamour, both with their exploits and their fantastical costumes. They commonly performed on bills with their families, billed under names like the Beckwith Frogs or their mermaids and mermen, the Mrs. Johnson. These naiad circus swimmers and swimming showmen and women showed off an amazing range of skills swimming and underwater feats. Everything from smoking pipes and drinking milk to holding one's breath for as long as 70 seconds. They also exhibited swimming strokes, including the new strokes being introduced for competitive swimming, and swimming life-saving techniques, including staged drowning rescues. These exhibitions were often used to help drum up work for swimming schools and classes featuring either the performers themselves or members of their families who were also involved in swimming sports. Lady swimmers often worked alongside their fathers and brothers, just like Agnes and Laura did performing as part of a swimming family or as part of a brother-sister team like the swimmers Harry and Emily Parker. Most of these women had siblings, children, and temporary adopted families or colleagues who also became part of their swimming families, increasing the appeal of the larger group acts. In some cases, the lady swimmers toured extensively as part of their swimming families or started swimming-related businesses with their husbands after marriage. Even having children did not stop many of these lady swimmers from using their skills to continue to earn some income by swimming. Swimming had economic value for a number of women in England in the late 1800s, but there was still a double standard in expectations around their behavior versus the behavior of the male swimmers. 
As the Sporting Times called out in May of 1892, with the notable exception of the Beckwiths, who, father and sons, are credit to themselves in their sport, for some peculiar reason, professional swimmers are, as a rule, the dirtiest dogs in the world. Physically, you would expect them to be clean, but with a maximum of water, they manage to combine a maximum of dirt. And as for their behavior, mudlarks are in it for blackguardism. Men who were swimming professionals were not always the most well-behaved individuals in London society in the 1800s. Lady swimmers, however, were expected to act with some decorum. In 1893, Violet Mitchell lost a lucrative job as a swimming performer for, among other things, supposedly lowering the moral tone of the show. She sued for the income that she had lost from losing that job. It was a quite lucrative job, and the court found in Violet's favor where she won 30 pounds, or just under $5,000, in lost wages. One of the ongoing concerns about the lady swimmers and their impact on the morally upright public had to do with the outfits they wore in the water. What on earth should women wear for bathing and swimming? Bathing costumes, which were designed for taking the waters or floating around in calm water, were originally designed for modesty and were essentially large sacks with arm and leg holes. While functional for floating, sitting, or standing in water, these were not only not helpful for swimming, they could be actively dangerous as a source of accidental drowning. Men at the time often swam entirely naked, which would not do for lady swimmers, so some accommodation had to be made. The naiads and performance swimmers often had roots in the circus, and they took many costuming notes from the circus performers around them, experimenting with closer-fitting wools, silks, and flannel in bright colors. Cotton was absolutely out of the question as it became quite indecently clingy when wet. The question of swim costume was so difficult to resolve that a bathing bill was put forward in the House of Lords to try and regulate this, though it was ultimately determined that this should be handled at the municipal level. The Salford Baths Committee passed a local ruling in 1906 that required both men and women to wear appropriate bathing costumes, though the Salford Council would provide the bathing costume free of charge, helping keep swimming accessible in that community. Lady swimmers ultimately landed on costumes made from stockinette knit as the most effective for sports swimming, and the University Conference for Sports Swimmers ultimately determined that these should be navy, red, or black, with a sleeve and a straight cut along the neck and back. Women engaged in competitions were to wear a coat or robe at all times that they were not in the water. While naiads continued to don showier costumes for their performances, swimmers who were learning the skills stuck primarily to the approved styles. Returning to our lady racers, Agnes Bethwith began her swimming career at a young age and was pulling off astounding feats by the time she was 14, such as swimming five miles up the River Thames from London Bridge to Greenwich. This was a shocking event at the time, and Penny Illustrated declared, no one who had witnessed the event could ever doubt Agnes's ability, but it was questionable whether either good taste or judgment had been shown by her guardian in permitting her to perform so arduous a feat. 
Prior to Agnes's swim, only Matthew Webb, who was the first man to swim across the English Channel, and a former student of Agnes's father, Fred, held such a record on the Thames, demonstrating that women were able to compete at the same level as men for swimming feats. Agnes, like her father, was a performer, athlete, and instructor teaching swimming to young women, teaching at her father's school at the Lambeth Baths, and touring with the other Beckwiths as part of their underwater production, training for an ongoing series of physical feats, including her three-race match against Laura Sagerman. Laura also appeared as both a swimming performer and as a swimming instructor, competing in a number of feats of swimming power and racing against other competitors. While Agnes was in many ways mostly a show person, her father prevented her from racing against several highly rated competitive swimmers at the time to preserve her image in solo feats. Laura was an athlete. She would take on all races and competitors. Agnes lost the race at Hastings in 1879. Laura Sagerman won best two out of three and went back to her regular role as a swimming instructor for women. Agnes went on to years of swimming performance billed as the greatest lady swimmer on earth. This included a tour of the United States, ongoing engagements in Europe, and appearing before the Prince and Princess of Wales. Laura went on to run a bathing machine company with her husband and continued to teach swimming to students, including her daughter, who was winning swimming competitions by the age of five. As we are often told, imitation is the purest form of flattery, and this was also true for the lady swimmers of England, especially Agnes Beckwith and her sisters. Women using the name Agnes Beckwith and a variety of other assorted Beckwith sisters and daughters, including an Annie, an Alice, a Cora, and a Clara, began appearing in swimming exhibitions around the world, especially in the United States and Australia. Some of these women were able to build careers or make a quick buck, but they all continued the visual and cultural presence of women in swimming. This ongoing presence of women in swimming led to an ongoing expectation of women in swimming and a normalization of the idea of women competitors appearing in apparel appropriate for the physical activity of swimming. Women as skilled swimming competitors became so normalized that women's swimming and diving were included in the 1912 Olympics the same year that decathlon and pentathlon were introduced to the competition. Of the 48 women competing in the 1912 Olympics, 40 of them competed in swimming and diving events, out of 2,408 total competitors. Women were first involved in the Olympics in 1900 with only 22 women participating only in golf and tennis. In the water, women were able to compete in the same activities as men, and their inclusion in these sports at this time including with the knit swimming costumes that were still in favor, was likely heavily influenced by the persistent cultural idea that swimming was not only a healthy sport for women, but a good draw for spectators. The brother of Matthew Webb, first man to swim the English Channel, erected a monument to his brother after his passing that read, Nothing great is easy. And this seems especially true for the working-class women trying to make a living teaching and demonstrating swimming in Victorian England, At the same time, they were fighting cultural norms on engaging in proper physical activity, acceptable wardrobe, and trying to hold their own in a performance field where men carried a large draw. At the same time, the swimming schools trained generations of regular people, including women, how to swim, saving lives and creating a culture of swimming that included women as athletic competitors. 
As the Amateur Swimmers Associations grew in England and Europe, the culture of professional swimming professors and performing swimming troops declined, though their legacy remains in the ongoing enthusiasm for the sport and accessibility of training for water safety and the inclusion of women as swimmers. The lady swimmers of Victorian England weren't heroes. They didn't band together to advocate for some great achievement for women. Often, when represented in modern media, their stories are fictionalized. There isn't as much zing in a story that ends, and then she got married and raised her children to swim as well. That said, these women made lives for themselves. They earned good wages to help support their families, and, inadvertently perhaps, they created opportunities for the women who followed them. Professor Dave Day, who is a professor of sports history at Manchester Metropolitan University, who has done extensive research on the topic of the development of swimming culture in the 1800s, is explicit about the impact of these lady swimmers. He says, The rapid expansion of female swimming, rather than bathing, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries was often attributed to the example set by professional swimmers such as Agnes. In closing... In Odd Salon tradition, I'd like to raise a toast to the lady swimmers of Victorian England. Not only did their efforts save countless women and children from drowning due to the lack of swimming ability, they helped pave the way for women's ongoing participation in swimming as a sport and as an income-generating activity. Ladies, let's hit the pool. Thank you for listening to the Odd Salon podcast. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes and recommend our podcast to your curious-minded friends and family. For access to a little something extra with every episode, become an annual member at oddsalon.com forward slash membership or join Odd Salon on Patreon. You can also join the ongoing conversation with our speakers and extended community on our Facebook group, Something Weird. This episode was written and presented by Barbara North, recorded by Mig Miner and produced by Annetta Black and Trey Balchowski.